Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And with the roadmap announced, we are now discussing fundraising events, when they are likely to restart and what they might look like over the coming months. But before we get into that, Rebecca, I want to ask you a very important question, which is how much money is too much money to spend on wallpaper? Do you know, I've never bought wallpaper in my life, so I have no idea, uh, honestly. Neither have I. But yeah, I imagine there probably is a limit that you come to quite quickly, um, I would say. I think if the answer lies somewhere between, I don't know how much wallpaper costs, but I would say if the answer lies somewhere in the region of setting up a charitable enterprise to cover the costs of it, I would call that red zone territory. That's fair. That's fair. Um, It's certainly a question that's on everybody's minds this week after several national newspapers reported that Boris Johnson has allegedly formulated plans to set up a charity to help pay for improvements to his flat. So, yep, according to The Times, the PM wants the organisation to raise cash to fund the makeover of his ministerial apartment above number 10 Downing Street, after being informed that the maximum taxpayer contribution would be in the region of about £30,000. I mean, have you heard a sadder story, honestly? You've got to have some sympathy. £30,000? No one can do anything with £30,000. Like, it's, it's pure peanuts, isn't it? Yeah, however much wallpaper costs, I'm sure it is It is more than £30,000. Sure, <laughs> yeah. So the taxpayer will only give Boris Johnson a cool 30 grand to refurbish his apartment. And apparently there is some sort of thing going on with them throwing out quote unquote nightmare John Lewis furniture owned by Theresa May. I really like John Lewis. I don't know. I think John Lewis is very posh, but yeah, yeah. I feel like I feel like we're at the level where we're aspiring to John Lewis rather Completely. than looking down our nose at it. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like... Anyway, apparently John Lewis doesn't cut it. Um, they want to go higher end. So the PM has allegedly asked Lord Brownlow of Sherlock Row, who it turns out is not in fact a Dickens character, but a <laughs> Tory peer and multi-millionaire financier, to run the charity. And some reports said he had filed an application to register it with the Charity Commission, although the regulator has told us that it hasn't received such an application yet. So according to the Times, the charity could be funded by private donors, which would risk claims of a conflict of interest if it were seen as a backdoor way of providing benefit to the Prime Minister. If it was seen, if, if it was seen to be a backdoor way of providing benefit to the Prime Minister to... um updo his his living room it could be seen that way you could argue plausibly that it was a backdoor way of providing the prime minister with a benefit so (laughs) possibly yeah not unsurprisingly this plan has gone down like a lead balloon i think that's quite a kind turn of phrase as well among the sector bucket of cold sick might be fairer (laughs) and a former chairman of the committee on standards has in fact gone as far as to call the scheme monstrous which i think is uh, a very apt turn of phrase for it no, absolutely. I mean, you know, we we often say on this podcast, we often say in the magazine, charities do really important work. We didn't mean picking out curtains. Yeah, I think it's pushing the term charity begins at home a little bit <laughs> too far, right? I think you go, I've done it. I've done it this week. It's done. It's out of the way early. Yeah, this week, this week, Emily had the pun. Woo. Um, yeah, I just... Absolutely I, extraordinary. It is astonishing. So... 
in fairness, this is based on a similar scheme that happened in the US uh, with the White House. But I kind of, I just feel that's very different because obviously the White House is kind of part of the seat of government. You know, many, many offices are, you know, I know there are offices within um, number 10, but, you know, I think there's a lot more office space. It is much more a public monument and a public space than 10 Downing Street is. Absolutely. I mean, you can go on a tour through the White House. Yeah. Right? I have been I've been to the White House. I've done a walk through the rooms and looked at all the paintings and that sort of thing. It is, you know, yes, it's where the president lives and works and all the rest of it, but it is also a place that the public... It is open to the public. The public do come and walk around it. So that's one thing. I think uh, the apartment above 10 Downing Street very hard to imagine that they're also going to throw open their doors and have members of the public trooping through the living room several times a day on on guided tours and that sort of thing. Maybe they are. Who knows? I mean, not not least that Boris Johnson was on, what, £250,000 a year for his Telegraph column before he became Prime Minister? Like... Mate, if you haven't got any of that left, maybe you shouldn't be in charge of of the country's budget, you know. I know Rishi's doing the job as well, but like, hmm. I have seen a few stories over the last year about him complaining that he is strapped for cash at the moment. Then go to IKEA like the rest of us. Or, better yet, if you want if you want charity to help you decorate that apartment and furnish that apartment, the BHF, the British Heart Foundation, has a chain of furniture and electrical charity stores, and I'm sure they will be only too glad to help you out. Maybe go there. Let's send them the tip. Let's do it. The London Marathon was one of the first fundraising casualties of the coronavirus pandemic. It was due to take place on the 26th of April last year and was initially postponed until October before eventually being run as an elites-only event in person and a virtual event for the rest of the country. It was a real blow to the sector. I remember it really well, the first stories coming in about it being cancelled. And you can completely understand why, because... This race is worth tens of millions of pounds to hundreds of charities every year. Before 2020, it broke the world record for the highest amount raised by an annual single-day fundraising event for 13 consecutive years. There is a lot of cash riding on days like this. In 2019, a total of 43,000 runners raised more than £66 million for charity. So yes, as you're saying... A lot of money involved. And I mean, I remember last year putting up on Facebook kind of, oh, if anybody has any particular favourite charities, they're going to lose a lot of money this April. So maybe bung some cash their way because the the marathon thing is going to be a big problem for them this year. To which I kind of think, oh, you sweet summer child. (laughs) Obviously, (laughs) there was a lot more coming. Uh, But as far as the marathon was concerned, though, all was not lost. And charities did manage to recoup some of the income through the 2.6 challenge, which ran over the weekend the marathon should have taken place in April and involved members of the public completing challenges involving the numbers two and six. And that raised around £11 million. Then in October, 45,000 people took part in the marathon virtually, running 26.2 miles at a time and place of their choosing over the same weekend as the elite race took place raising 16.2 million so we're not quite up to the 66 million but you know it's a a, a good a good effort so this year the race has been postponed until october once again but given the success of the vaccination program and the government's roadmap there are tentative plans to physically hold the event in london as normal but the organizers it seems have spotted an opportunity from last year 
as well as the 50,000 places to physically participate in the event in London, which is the biggest number they've ever had, they're also allocating an additional 50,000 places to take part virtually. And it's been a popular option. All 100,000 places have been snapped up, meaning charities could be set for a bumper windfall this year, which, let's face it, many of them will desperately need. I really, really hope it goes ahead. And I'm so excited to see this appetite for people wanting to participate and wanting to fundraise coming so relatively early in the year, given that it's not going to be taking place in October. Um, I think we're all hoping that we will see this similar appetite across lots of other events because the marathon is far from the only fundraising um, calendar day that has been hit by the pandemic. Uh, Cancer Research UK's Race for Life, Macmillan's World's Biggest Coffee Mornings, the British Heart Foundation's London to Brighton bike ride. Any number of dates in the fundraising calendar have been disrupted over the last year and they have been a big contributor to the massive financial loss that the sector has suffered. So now that social restrictions are allegedly, potentially, hopefully being lifted in June, what is this going to mean for fundraising events? And what should charities be considering when they are planning for the coming months? Well, after the roadmap was announced, our colleague Andy Ricketts spoke to Daniel Flusky, who's the head of policy and external affairs at the Chartered Institute of Fundraising. Uh, Daniel was pretty cautious about the whole thing. He said it was far too early for charities to start putting definitive plans in place for fundraising activities for the rest of the year, which fair enough. Yeah, he's got a point. The timetable laid out by the government is subject to change. And as Boris Johnson said, it's about data, not dates. It might be that we don't hit the key government requirements to trigger the lifting of restrictions. So it may not be a great idea for charities to gamble heavily on definitely being able to run physical events this year. Dan Flusky also made an interesting point that the restrictions are really only half the story. Charities will also need to think about whether their supporters will have the appetite for events, even if they're actually allowed. Mm, Very true. Very true. And even if you can physically run events, you still need to consider whether you can give supporters the kind of experience you would want to, in terms of them having a good time, making the right connection with your cause, and ultimately being inspired to donate. So Flusky pointed out that while some people would be keen to get out and do things as soon as they can, other people would be reluctant or hesitant, for example, if they're vulnerable or shielding. So, he said, it's likely to be a very mixed picture in terms of what charities think is right for them, what supporters think is right, and the kind of activities they're going to want to do. We won't suddenly be back to normal as soon as we hit the 21st of June. I completely agree. And I think the reality is that there's no way you can just stick a pin on a calendar and say, this is when things are going to be okay again, which is why we're looking at data, not dates. Um, uncertainty is the thorn in our side. It has stopped us acting on so many things in the last year. So you can absolutely understand why organisations would be cautious around this. So if you are planning, what Dan recommends is that you look at what you do over the year, that you are thinking about what your supporters want, what kind of engagement that might be, and, and planning your events around the needs and the interests of your supporters rather than putting a fixed timetable out there and saying we're going to run this event because we can deliver it on a specific day. The roadmap's going to be useful in terms of informing strategic decision-making rather than being a definitive manual in its own right of when things will come back. And I think it is very important that all of us are keeping that in mind when we are looking ahead this year. Mm, Absolutely. So a friend of mine who works at events has taken to saying cold toast isn't bread. So what he means by that is that even after the restrictions are lifted and we all go back to normal, it's not going to be exactly like it was before. We've all lived through a strange and difficult experience and maybe it's going to take a while before we're happy to be in crowded, enclosed public spaces with strangers again to touch things other people might have touched and and all of those things that we've kind of trained ourselves out of over the past year. 
So that's going to bring some challenges. But there are also opportunities. We're all much better acquainted with video calling and other digital technologies than we were this time last year. And we're not restricted to only attending events that we can physically get to. Um, So I was talking to Hilary Evans at Alzheimer's Research UK a few weeks ago, and she was saying that because Alzheimer's Research is quite a young charity, relatively speaking, they came to the mass participation event scene a lot later than other charities. And so they kind of baked the virtual elements into their events programme. And as a result, many of their events were able to continue unhindered by the pandemic. So it's possible that just as the marathon has found a way to blend the physical and the digital, so my other events, many charities may have expanded their digital offering in the last few months and may not wish to get rid of that or to lose the what they've learned from that over the next few years. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Ride London, it's also owned by London Marathon Events and they cancelled their annual cycling event in January this year. That was due to go ahead in May. So it's probably a good thing that they did because they would not be able to have carried it out under these restrictions. But they have said that they're working with the mayor's office to deliver a virtual event in the summer designed to inspire as many people as possible to cycle more often, to engage new cyclers or people who used to cycle but don't anymore to raise money for charity. So there is a lot of work still to taking place around digital. Personally, I think we're going to be seeing hybrid events for a very long time to come. And I think something that's really positive that could come out of this is that it can make fundraising events or live events much, much more accessible uh, to a far wider audience than we might have had previously. So as you mentioned, you know, people are going to be coming back out of this pandemic in very, very different ways. So even if the roadmap holds and we get the dates and people can do a sponsored run or a sponsored other event come June, there are going to be those people who are clinically vulnerable, who might have been shielding and who emotionally and mentally aren't in that place where they're ready to get back out there and into it. It's something that could particularly impact disabled people, uh, people from minoritized communities and don't forget elderly people um, who often you know, do a lot of work around charity. Um, it's not going to be a roadmap for everyone. And so what it means is that when you're planning live events, it's very important to think about them through an inclusive lens to deliver them in an inclusive way. And it might be that we see a really positive outcome in that people will be coming up with solutions for events that they might not necessarily have considered in a pre-pandemic environment. Absolutely. Um, So this morning, as we're recording on the Wednesday, Wednesday 3rd, uh, so hot off the press, the fundraising regulator's head of policy, Charlotte Irwin, published a blog on the regulator's website about its approach to restrictions easing. So she points out that the variety of fundraising activity means the regulator can't create a prescriptive set of rules to follow. And there just isn't a one size fits all model that's going to apply for all charities and all fundraising. So instead, she says, organisations must make their own reasoned and informed decisions to restart or adapt their fundraising activities. Key points organisations need to bear in mind, she says, are keeping up to date with government guidance and that from the devolved nations and carrying out risk assessments. She also says that charities need to make reasoned and informed decisions, which she says means weighing up the benefits and risks of their ongoing fundraising activities and deciding what is in the best interest of the public, supporters, staff, volunteers and beneficiaries. And she also points out that it's important that these are properly documented. So keep your notes. Um, The other important factors to consider are how you will protect the public, whether that's through social distancing measures, increased sanitation or other measures. And of course, making sure you comply with the Code of Fundraising Practice.
Absolutely. And there are charities that have just done incredible things to involve their fundraising practices to fit within guidelines like this. So I recently sat on a panel with Shabby Amini, who is a fundraising consultant, and she did some work with Greenpeace last year. And when the country unlocked a bit last summer, Greenpeace launched a new door-to-door fundraising campaign. And it was just so cool. So they did a series of door drops. The first thing they did was they put um, envelopes through the letterboxes of people which said, you know, we're going to be coming in your area, um, coming to talk to you to people about sort of Greenpeace and what we're doing and our mission. And inside the envelopes, there was a little sticker of the Greenpeace rang tang from the environment. And if you weren't comfortable to have people coming to your door, if you wanted to stay at home, if you were shielding, all you had to do was put the Rangtang sticker on your front door, just a little one, and that would be a, an immediate visual symbol to fundraisers that um, this was not the sort of door you want to knock on, that they needed to steer clear. Um, so they did that drop first, and then a couple of weeks later, people came back. And um, when they did the door knocks, the first thing that they would do is they had a, a roll mat, a bit like a yoga mat, which was two metres long. So they would stand at the end of the gate, they would roll it out as a really clear indicator of something that created that two, two metres plus distance. Um, and it had, again, the Greenpeace orangutan on it. Um, and that was a conversational starting point, they found immediately as somebody opened the door. Um, And apparently what was really interesting about this campaign was that almost nobody put the stickers on the front door to say, don't come and talk to us. People really, really wanted to see new people and have these conversations, (laughs) as you would imagine, after being shut at home for six months. So it ended up being a really, really successful campaign. And I just thought that the measures they put in place to keep people safe and to follow all of the guidelines, really smart, really effective and really closely tied to the work of the charity, the imagery of the charity, so that even if people weren't opening the door or didn't want to have the conversation, they were still thinking about the organisation. Yeah, absolutely. And okay, so that's a door-to-door example, but there's definitely ways in which that could be adapted in a um, event space. Um, Having that really visual symbol of we're taking your safety really, really seriously, we want you to feel comfortable, I think is going to be an important thing. So yeah, whatever you and your charity decide to do, good luck. Um, And do let us know about any innovative solutions you come up with, what impact blended events might have on your fundraising. We'd love to hear about it. Each week, we are bringing you a mini coronavirus care package, a good news story that we've spotted in the sector. Rebecca's doing it this week, so please take it away. So I've actually got two for you this week. Hurrah! Um, So, first one up, Aldi customers in Scotland who have donated more than 2,000 unused pairs of socks as part of Aldi's Not Socks Again appeal, which is supporting the vital work of three homelessness charities, Simon Community Scotland, Aberdeen Cyrenians and Trust in Fife. So socks are one of the most frequently requested items by these charities' beneficiaries. So sock amnesty boxes were placed in all 96 Scottish Aldi stores between Boxing Day and the end of January for customers to drop off any extra and unused socks they'd received over Christmas. Uh, And they collected 2,000 unused pairs. I actually think this is especially generous this Christmas. Like, I don't know about anybody else, but working from home, I've been really enjoying having, like, comfy socks to wear. Um, and sort of nice fluffy socks. So 100%. I, yeah, absolutely. So I was delighted when I got loads of them for Christmas. So yeah, well done to Scottish Aldi customers. Um, 
doing great work and keeping people's feet warm. Christmas socks, gotta love it. Absolutely. Um, so next up, we've got uh, the Scouts. So the Scouts has announced the results of its partnership with Zoom to tackle loneliness and isolation during the pandemic. I know a lot of us have been feeling a little bit of Zoom fatigue, but also this feeling that if we weren't able to have video calls on any platform, we would, I, I think I think this would have been a whole lot harder the past year. Mm. So the Scouts worked with the video conferencing platform to ensure that they created materials to show how to connect safely and how to make meetings both fun and interactive, taking advantage of platform features such as digital whiteboards and breakout rooms. So since March 2020, the partnership has enabled 475,000 young people and 165,000 volunteers to take part in Zoom's enabled education and support sessions. They've clocked up 135 million Zoom minutes as part of 300,000 different programme sessions and support meetings and 99% of the organisation, including 7,727 local groups have signed up to the platform. So it really seems like the Scouts have found a way to make um, to continue the contact they were having with the young people they work with, to make these meetings fun and interactive and to try and stave off the loneliness that we know is plaguing young people. So that's also a really positive story about charities adapting and evolving during the crisis, which we've seen a lot of. Great job, Scouts. I think, yeah, we are definitely seeing um, a mental health crisis among young people at the moment. Um, the isolation and the lack of social interaction is a massive problem at the moment. So I think all organisations and so many youth organisations have done incredible things to bridge those gaps and to make sure that young people are still feeling connected. It's it's such important work. So a massive well done for everything that you do and continue to do. So that's all from us this week. We'll be back with another episode soon. So make sure you subscribe to this, the Third Sector podcast, on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Emily Burt. And I'm Rebecca Cooney. And our producer is Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. We will see you next week. <laughs>